no idea what number this is going to come out as, but it's about crime in Antarctica. The following questions are usually asked on paper and offered with a Likert scale for responses ranging from 1, not at all, to 7, for very much so. Stick with me here, it'll make sense. Hopefully. Have you ever felt hatred toward either of your parents? Do you ever feel guilty? Does every attractive person of your preferred demographic turn you on? Do you ever get angry? Do you ever have thoughts that you don't want other people to know that you have? Do you ever feel attracted to people outside your acknowledged preferred demographic? Have you ever made a fool of yourself? Are there things in your life that make you unhappy? Is it important to you that other people think highly of you? Would you like to know what other people think of you? Were your parents ever mean to you? Do you have any bad memories? Have you ever thought that your parents hated you? Do you have sexual fantasies? Have you ever felt uncertain about your sexual orientation? Have you ever doubted your sexual adequacy? Have you ever enjoyed your bowel movements? Have you ever considered suicide as a means to get back at somebody? Have you ever wanted to rape or to be raped by somebody? These questions arose in a psychological brainstorming session by Harold Sackheim and Ruben Gurr. They based their questions on a supposition that these elements of the human experience, while embarrassing to acknowledge, are universal. Universality is hard to nail down to absolute certainty in any aspect of any study of biological systems, of which human psychology is a subset. But their knowledge of the psychology literature and their experience in psychological research led Sackheim and Gurr to select these questions as representing widespread but rarely acknowledged truths and applying them experimentally to see if the answers people gave offered scope for reliable predictions about how a subject would react in subsequent situations. And they did. Again, generality and universality aren't the same thing, but utility doesn't care. The questions miss outliers but encompass enough of the human experience to hold predictive value. The embarrassing question test became a psych assessment of whether or not a person is good at self-deception. The insights gained from Sackheim and Gurr's research haven't progressed much in the 40 years since their first steps with their list of embarrassing questions, perhaps because self-deception is too broad a label, covering self-inflation bias, semi-pretense and false emotion as well as processes we might identify as self-deception in a classical sense. But that lack of progress doesn't alter the validity of the correlations psychologists subsequently identified. Being measurably good at lying to yourself in Sackheim and Gurr's test predicts a greater happiness than being bad at lying to yourself. Being good at lying to yourself predicts for greater success in sport and in business, perhaps because self-doubt never troubles mental preparation and ethical quandaries about cheating are erased by compelling rationalizations prepared and presented internally 
with no attendant cognitive dissonance. Being good at lying to yourself also predicts against depression, allegedly because good self-deceivers can ignore those aspects of life they find distasteful and apply doxastic anxiety to prevent them even acknowledging there's something unpleasant to ignore. I score very high on Gurr and Sackheim's embarrassing questions. Keep this in mind as I relate the following anecdote drawn from my time diving with the Enzarp out of Scott Base. I've recounted the diver rescue drill the team I worked with at Cape Armitage went through in 2004, with dive supervisor Brian Grant lying on the benthos with a sign between his hands announcing, I'm an unconscious diver, rescue me. I worked through that situation as per my training, and the Scott-based field safety team assessed the rescue as successful. I've also mentioned the problems I experienced with Brian Grant as the team dive supervisor, and problems other people had with him as guardian of the University of Otago Survey Department database, and the behaviour that led to his finally getting sacked, and then exacting his revenge for the university sacking him. My life would have been a lot easier without Brian Grant white-anting me behind my back and threatening to punch my teeth down my throat in front of it. I know several people whose lives would be easier and less stressful if Brian Grant was no longer present, even at considerable spatial and temporal distances from the problems he caused them. When the field safety assessors paid a visit to the dive hut the following Austral summer, it came as no surprise to me to be placed on the old bus seat our team used for the standby diver, while Brian entered the water to carry out that day's tasks below the sea ice. Every couple of minutes or so, I asked Mike, tending Brian's tether line, to send one pull to ask, are you okay? Brian responded with one pull to respond, I am okay, until he didn't. Twice more, I asked Mike to send the interrogative pull, and twice more, we received no response, at which I called an emergency, tasking Miles with radioing Scott Bass as I lumbered from my seat, clipped my lanyard onto Brian's tether, and stepped into the dive hole. I drew the lanyard's carabiner along the tether as I descended, and found, on reaching open water beneath the tunnel through the sea ice, the rope bled out along the ice underside, rather than falling away to the seafloor as in the previous year. I followed Brian's tether out to its full extent, and found him face up in the brash, his weight belt ditched, and his dry suit and buoyancy compensator inflated in a simulated buoyancy emergency. As per rescue training, I checked his second stage regulator was in his mouth, giving it a purge in case it was flooded, and then kept one hand over it and his face to ensure the regulator stayed in place. My other hand grasped the yoke of his scuba cylinder, preparatory to towing him to safety, and it was then that the idea occurred to me. I could turn the yoke valve in the righty-tighty direction and kill Brian. With his buoyancy all fucked up and me tucked behind him, there would be little he could do about it. I didn't doubt he would struggle, but I was younger and fitter than him, and had a full upper hand of mobility and leverage, giving the starting circumstances in any resulting fight for his life. I could erase Brian's presence from my life and the lives of the people he delighted in fucking over and treating like dirt. Then, once the struggling stopped, I could turn the cylinder back on 
tow the corpse back to the dive hut and tell those present I found him with his second stage out of his mouth and Brian apparently too firmly wedged in the brash to work his way free and regain it. Not a perfect crime by any means, but I would stand as the only witness and the number of deaths from drills in New Zealand maritime situations exceeded the number of deaths from actual emergencies by a factor of two to one during the era under scrutiny. Shit does go wrong in such situations. It wasn't the thought that I might get found out, charged with murder, convicted and sent to prison that stayed my hand. It was the thought of Brian's children mourning their father. I have no idea if Brian was a good father or if he treated his children the way he treated everyone else he encountered, but the harm he did me didn't justify depriving two children of their father, so I didn't kill him. I towed the fat fuck back to the dive hole in a cumbersome and exhausting series of moves, comprising pulling him down against the buoyancy he regularly replenished from his low-pressure inflators any time I tried to bring his suit and BC back to something approaching Archimedic neutrality, yanking him a metre sideways while clear of the friction of the brash ice, taking an inverted step along the ceiling of solid sea ice, then repeating the action after his potent positive buoyancy lofted him once more. It took several minutes and a lot of contortions, standing waist-deep in the brash ice, trying to find purchase and make progress. On reaching the dive hole, Brian's buoyancy took the load, and I let him reach the surface slowly in the manner you would let out a kite in its string, while I braced myself against the ice underside. The team in the hut received him and worked through the unconscious diver recovery and oxygen first aid procedures smoothly while I made my ascent and climbed from the water. Shaken by the effort, the exercise nearly blew my entire cylinder's worth of air, in spite of working at only 4 metres effective depth for a matter of minutes, but more so by this unexpected insight into my mental workings. I could contemplate killing another person as a pure matter of consequential ethics in just a few seconds. No emotional dimension I felt consciously alert to, and no concern about the legal repercussions of someone realising the death wasn't a rescue drill gone wrong. Just the question, is killing this person warranted? And it wasn't. I encourage you to live your life in a manner that no one ever weighs your continued existence through such a tightly focused lens, but I've shared this aspect of my past, the first time I've ever done so, in order to illustrate something important. You don't have to be deranged, to contemplate killing someone. There's a few people would claim that I am deranged, but the outcome doesn't bear that out in this instance. If I was deranged, I might have come to a different conclusion than the one I did, and gone on to shut off Brian's air. Some might even contend that contemplating killing someone is, itself, deranged. But before holding that conclusion firm, consider this. Dr. Don McLean, medical officer of the rare at Stonington Island, recounted a similar split-second decision that prevented the premature death of Commander Finn Ronnie. Recall from a few episodes ago that Finn Ronnie was a small-minded micromanager with a big ego and little talent for leadership as per Wilkins, or for manipulating people as per Bird. McLean found himself atop a cliff with Commander Ronnie examining bird nests. Sick of Ronnie's mercurial moods and dictatorial mode, felt and resisted the urge 
to push his leader off the cliff to his certain and certainly easy to make look accidental death. Quote, I never came so close to killing anybody in my life. Unquote. Two anecdotes might not make a case that I'm not deranged, but at least with Dr. Don, I'm in good company, having felt, however briefly, the urge to erase a problematic person from my existence by bringing about their death. Sackheim and Gurr never posited, I have felt an urge to kill a person as part of their assessment of self-delusion, but I think it might turn out to be a more widespread impulse than most people would readily admit to, though I'd score seven points on that one, so don't take my word for its universality. So what, you ask? Besides both anecdotes taking place in Antarctica, what are we, the ice coffee listenership intangible Greek chorus, to make of this insight? I fail to hear you cry because podcasting is a dyotic medium. I want you to keep in mind that not every conviction of murder or attempted murder is necessarily applied to unwarranted killing. If killing someone is justified, then it constitutes something other than murder or attempted murder if they don't die. I don't like victim blaming, and homicides aren't able to defend themselves by definition, but sometimes people do kill other people for sound reasons, making the deceased something other than a victim, and their death something other than murder. Sometimes people kill for unsound reasons that seemed sound because circumstances pushed that person beyond reason, in which case the necessary premises of premeditation or the possession of a sound mind might not be met in a legal case seeking a conviction for murder. Fortunately, the number of murders and attempted murders in Antarctica are small enough to handle in a single episode, which I'll do now. I already recounted how a Russian biologist's assistant aboard the Belgica during its 1896 sojourn in the sea ice of the Gerlache Strait would attack anyone who spoke the word something in French because he thought it meant attack. He never killed anyone, but he might have done if not for the presence of Cook and Amundsen as stabilising beacons of sanity and amity in that especially melancholy long dark. And that someone aboard Der Deutschland shot at and missed First Officer Kling while he was out working on the sea ice during that fraught and syphilis-haunted winter. I'm sure there are other violent incidents that never came to light in accounts of expeditions, or are recounted in accounts I've yet to read or may never get my hands on. I've also recounted a murder at Vostok Station, the Soviet presence near the centre of the East Antarctic Ice Sheet in Princess Elizabeth Land, the planet's pole of coldness, in 1959. During a chess match, one player accused the other of an illegal move. Their opponent laughed off the accusation, at which the claimant reached for a fire axe, some accounts have it as an ice axe, and hit the alleged cheat in the head with it. Some accounts leave the match in dispute and the player on the receiving end of the axe dead. Others cite the game as decided in the favour of the axe victim, but the blow as non-fatal. Either way, the Soviet management system addressed the matter of chess-based stress by banning the game at Soviet stations. Problem solved once and for all. I said once and for all! At McMurdo in 1986, someone assaulted someone else with a piece of metal piping, but that's presently all I can find out about that incident. 
also of McMurdo, in 1996, a breakfast cook took to his supervisor with a hammer. The story comes to me via back channels and is patchy as fuck, so the short version is exactly what I just told you. The long version is the breakfast cook in question, a veteran of several Antarctic contracts, spent six months working under an unpleasant boss who harassed him in their workspace and took opportunities to humiliate him in public spaces too. The breakfast cook applied for an early departure, but wasn't allowed to head north at Windfly. The breakfast cook quit their job, forfeiting their finishing bonus in order to force the hand of management into flying them out, but management refused, so the cook was stuck in McMurdo with no job, fucked pay, and their tormentor. The cook drank, heavily, before heading to building services and asking to borrow a hammer, which they then took to the galley and applied to the head of their supervisor. A colleague came to the aid of the supervisor and received hammer blows to the head, chlorine first, for their efforts. The alarm went out that someone was attacking people in the galley with an axe, because bad news doesn't have to be accurate to get people moving, and the hammerer was subdued by members of the fire department as they departed the scene of the attack. The senior National Science Foundation representative, deputised to act as a US Marshal, placed the assailant in confinement in one of the accommodation blocks, the carpenters adding wooden bars to the windows. Three FBI agents flew to McMurdo to take the assailant to Hawaii to stand trial on four charges of assault with a deadly weapon, and to take photographs, because even G-men and women aren't immune to Antarctic novelty and charm. The assailant pled not guilty. The case resolved to a guilty verdict, and the assailant served five years in prison. The victims of the attack received stitches to their head wounds, but remained on station and made full recoveries. The incident received some brief attention on Nick Johnson's website, Big Dead Place, and made the edit for the book of the same name. Johnson was a cynic, and rightly so, and he assessed the situation from a cynical perspective, prophesying repetition, seeing the incident as arising not because the breakfast cook was a nutter who shouldn't have been allowed on the ice, but because the mode of station life acted as a pressure cooker, making people who otherwise wouldn't express symptoms of mental illness become mentally ill and express it, in this instance, in claw hammer form. Management treated the situation as an aberration in normal station life, caused by an aberrant individual, but Nick saw the causal relationship the other way around. The individual a bird because normal station life affords opportunities for bullying without offering those experiencing such abuse much scope to redress the problem or to isolate themselves from the person causing it. One correspondent closed out the remarks regarding the attack with victim blaming. Quote, I will say that nobody cared that it was victim X that assailant Y whacked. End quote. Another thought of the day. Live your life in such a way that no one ever sees the hammer-wielding assailant side of an attempt on it. In May 2000, a 32-year-old Australian astrophysicist working at Pole reported to the medical facilities with stomach pains, nausea and registering a fever. The astrophysicist returned to the medical facility several times over the following day and a half 
as their symptoms and distress became increasingly acute. Joint pain, vomiting blood and hyperventilation led to panic and disorientation preceding a loss of consciousness. He died 36 hours after the onset of symptoms in spite of attempts at resuscitation. With the Scott Amundsen facility isolated for the winter, his body went into a freezer until the National Science Foundation could arrange to fly it to Christchurch for an autopsy. The NSF put out a press release that the death occurred due to natural causes. The astrophysicist's friends made a casket for the body, towed the casket on a Nansen sled, and held a memorial service at the pole marker. The Winter Over team departed Pole at the same time as, or shortly after, the New York Air National Guard Ski Hercules flew the body to McMurdo and from there on to Christchurch. Station colleagues of the deceased did speak to New Zealand authorities, but several of them departed New Zealand for their home nations before the release of the autopsy report. The autopsy revealed methanol poisoning as the cause of death with concentrations suggesting an ingested quantity in the vicinity of a wine glass of the stuff. US and Australian authorities agreed that a coronial inquest based in New Zealand seemed the logical path forward. A detective senior sergeant of the New Zealand police and the Christchurch coroner began their investigations, but they've yet to lodge a formal verdict because the National Science Foundation and Raytheon Polar Services the services contractor at the time, refused to share information with the New Zealand-based investigation. The United States Department of Justice similarly found the NSF and Raytheon unwilling to cooperate, each denying jurisdiction over the situation. The NSF conducted its own investigation, but never published any report, and refused to release any information it gathered to the New Zealand investigators. US documents released in 2007 under a Freedom of Information request hint at diplomatic pressure hindering the New Zealand inquiry. The family of the Australian astrophysicist gave up trying to find out how someone with ready access to a variety of cheap and free intoxicants that wouldn't kill them came to die from methanol poisoning. The coronial inquiry has been adjourned indefinitely because of the dearth of information the NSF and Raytheon might have provided, but decided not to, and you can go pound sand, the Christchurch Coroner's Office, New Zealand Police, and Australians generally, and the family of the deceased in particular. With only 50 people on station at the time of the death, and a number of circumstances ruling out suicide and making self-administered accidental ingestion unlikely, the methanol poisoning at Pole remains a perplexing death on its face, let alone in the face of NSF and Raytheon playing information flow games. In April 2006, an NSF marine tech disappeared from the icebreaker RV Lawrence M. Gould in moderate conditions during a transit north through the Drake Passage. The official report states he went overboard on the 17th, and that the ship ceased searching for his body after two days. The family of the deceased requested the ship's CCTV footage from the time of the disappearance 
but never received the data. I don't think there's anything suspicious about someone going overboard per se, but for fuck's sake would the NSF just get the information to the people who asked for it so they don't continue to look like they've got something to hide. Every time anything happens they don't want scrutinised, they maximise the Streisand effect by acting like they're not working for the betterment of all humanity. Shh, don't tell anyone, but they're not. They're occupying space in Antarctica and using science as a reason for that occupation. Or that they don't think the friends and family of the deceased constitute part of the set of all humanity. You can't treat the constituent parts of humanity like dirt and still claim you're working for the benefit of all humanity. And a lot of organisations get that bit wrong, ignoring the well-being of people in striving to achieve their goals in the name of the people, as though cracking eggs to make an omelette is always justified, even if the eggs are grieving families. As received a brief mention in the religion episode, a stabbing occurred at Bellingshausen Station on King George Island in 2018. The base electrician stabbed the base welder in October that year, and the chest. The assailant handed himself over to the base commander, and the victim received medical attention at the station hospital in the first pass, and in mainland Chile in the follow-up. The electrician was held in isolation at the church on the hillside above the station, before removal to St. Petersburg to stand trial for attempted murder. While prepared to plead guilty, the charges against the electrician were dismissed by the court when the welder filed a motion to terminate on having reconciled with his former fellow Bellingshausen resident. Initially, the stabbing received column inches as arising in a long-running dispute about the welder spoiling the endings of books, but Russian sources have since indicated there was more going on, though they don't get specific. Arson arson must be easy when everything flammable is tinder dry, strong winds occur regularly, and the water that might otherwise be called on to douse the flames is frozen solid. A number of accidental fires already received attention in the series, and there's more in the near offing. Deliberately started fires are less common in Antarctic history, but they have occurred. Shackleton burnt, or tried to burn, the former magnetic hut at Winter Quarters Bay after returning from within 100 nautical miles of the pole in March 1909. But this was before the UK Antarctic Heritage Trust was on the case, so he never received official censure for the vandalism, though Scott was none too pleased at the state of the place when he returned in 1912. As mentioned in the religion episode, a disgruntled winter over at McMurdo set fire to furnishings inside the second iteration of the Chapel of the Snows in order to get kicked out of Antarctica at the earliest possible opportunity, after getting drunk, after receiving word that wages and bonuses were being cut, and that the retirement fund for contractors was scrapped. The fire came under control because someone spotted the smoke and started pulling the burning materials outside, neatly addressing the question, what would you take out of a burning building, with the best possible answer, the fire. In April 1984, facing a second winter on site due to budget cuts preventing base staff relief, the base leader, also the base medical officer, at Argentina's Estancia Científica Almirante Brown 
on the shores of Paradise Harbour on the Antarctic Peninsula, set fire to the buildings to force his evacuation. The base previously experienced fire in 1951, the year the Argentine Navy established that first continental presence for their nation. But that was accidental. After coming under the auspices of the Argentine Antarctic Institute, Brown Station expanded to become the largest biology research facility on the Antarctic Peninsula, but that status came to an end in the flames in 1984. The USS Hero collected those on shore and carried them to Palmer Station, where they awaited an Argentine vessel to carry them north. The base leader stood trial for arson, but I don't know how that played out. Permanently staffed for around half its preceding 35 years, the fire reduced the utility of Brown Base, and it remains in its post-fire form as a summer-only site for occupation, and even then, that occupation has been sporadic. Theft Theft isn't a big deal at most Antarctic stations, or in the history of Antarctic exploration. No shops mean no cash, means no one's picking over anyone else's spaces or belongings, to see if they can make financial gain. Anything rare can become a hoarded commodity, with all the attendant subterfuge and theft that goes with limited supply and high demand, making cornflakes, chocolate and booze a source for sometimes playful, sometimes deadly serious larceny. But for the most part, the stuff people needed came free from the Q-Store. With money moot and most food staples readily available to Antarctic residents, People can get antsy about other things in short supply. Opportunities to engage in adventure, opportunities to find love and companionship, opportunities for career advancement. Sign-up sheets for boondoggles or jollies fill quickly, and cronyism can go a long way in determining who gets what opportunities, regardless of who put their hand up first. So getting off base to see a penguin, to stand in an old hut, or to fly up a glacier in a Bell 212 can be a matter of applied game theory and three-dimensional social chess. Some people will stand on a mountain of their dead grandmothers to have a unique experience, or in some cases, to have the bragging rights associated with having a unique experience. Nothing criminal in looking after yourself, but taking the seat of someone just as deserving, or perhaps more so, by shady means, is a form of experience theft. And while most legal frameworks won't recognise charges raised over such a matter, the hurt and sense of injustice in the party left on base not seeing penguins or glacial grandeur can feel every bit as real as financial or possession loss arising from theft. In episode 106, I derided Admiral Dufek's mouth spoutings that he wouldn't allow women in Antarctica until there was one for every man, that sentiment being hugely sexist and dunderheaded, and I stand by that assessment. But enough people find the loneliness associated with being a boorish asshole no one wants to spend time with sufficiently trying that they think they're being cheated of something righteously theirs. While whining about someone else having sex while they get none is even less ethically compelling than a gripe about someone getting boondoggles where someone else doesn't, the incel mentality is a thing. People get badly bent out of shape over jealousy and resentment of happiness in the densely populated cities of the nations with Antarctic presences, so it's not unexpected that we also see jealousy and resentment of perceived theft of affection and companionship in Antarctica, but it's still fucked up in the head, no matter how you try to assess it. Jealousy 
is a hard emotion to stave off when you're alone and lonely, but it's invariably worth the effort because it's a selfish and deluded emotion. Someone enjoying a relationship isn't doing so at your expense, because you aren't owed a relationship, and love isn't a zero-sum game, so anyone thinking along those lines can pull their head in. History doesn't hold to Admiral Defect's supposition, geared to prevent men fighting over women by ensuring supply met demand. People get jealous and feisty about relationships, even when the ratios of men and women match. Decreasing sexism is the only path to sorting out the violence and financial and emotional abuse that results, not increasing the ratio of women to men. Uh, Admiral Defect. Career advancement is hard in a town with a small population, where everyone present has specific skills fitted to specific tasks, and everyone worked hard to get their slot, and likely won't want to give it up until they're good and ready. I can't think of anyone trying to kill in order to dead managers boots their way to career success, but I can think of several situations wherein someone overlooked problematic incidents or behaviours in order to not rock any boats which might upset their own path to career goal fulfilment dudding other people in the process by nulling scope for them to achieve a just outcome in a matter of harm done them, or in failing to rectify a problem that might later cause someone else harm. Failing to act to prevent a harm and deliberately going out of your way to harm someone hold different ethical merits, but that's often of little interest to the person on the receiving end of whatever harm arises, particularly if that harm is permanent. Knowing your maiming was caused by neglect rather than malice might hold some small crumb of relief, but if the harm is of sufficient scale, that crumb's calorific content's likely pretty low. Career opportunity theft is of greater legal validity in a court setting than getting someone else's seat on a Hagland, but it's hard to quantify and demonstrate, but it's still theft. The single most significant theft I've recounted in the series to date is that of Dean Smith's diary during the transit home after Bird's first winter in Antarctica. Rumours of a $15,000 deal with the Hearst newspapers saw Bird's paranoia reach boiling point. He ordered Harold June, one of Smith's fellow pilots, to steal Smith's diary from his locker. June, who later got top pilot slot on Bird's second Antarctic foray, did Bird's bidding. Bird ordered the ship searched, safe in the knowledge that no one would find Smith's missing document, because he had it, and he hid it. Control of information has been perceived as incredibly important to some of the more ego-driven Antarctic leaders, and preventing people using the radios or censoring their messages before allowing them to pass over the airwaves might fit into the same mode thematically. Actually taking the object from a locked locker with the express purpose of preventing it painting bird as anything other than the upright mayor of Antarctica is the worst example of that urge to control information in Antarctica I've come across, and it makes a mockery of the idea it was set in motion to protect. The downside of self-delusion is that the person engaging in it won't recognise when the delusion ramps up to the point of farce. I don't think Bird ever saw anything wrong in asking June to steal Smith's diary, or in his secret loyal legion, or any other measure he employed to fuck people over to his own benefit. I think Bird's capacity for self-delusion far outpaced his capacity for reasoned thought, and that he went to his grave convinced he was right and righteous about even the wildest claims he made about Bent Balkan in his later years, 
because some narcissists can't imagine being wrong, let alone acknowledge it when they are. Seems to resonate loudly in light of recent events, but I can't put my finger on exactly what they might be. My interactions with Brian Grant, both on the ice and back in Dunedin, demonstrate he'll steal anything he can derive any benefit from, so long as he thinks no repercussions will ever find their way to him. I don't know every theft the grifty prick ever engaged in, but I can provide evidence of several of them, in circumstances where asking for the purloined goods would have likely resulted in them coming his way, and not left people wondering what happened to the stuff they'd left here. Right here, just a few minutes ago. I swear I put it down, and now it's grown legs and wandered off. On a lighter note, Nick Johnson, both in his book and on his website, recounted the tale of a McMurdo winter resident who planned and executed the theft of a snowmobile in order to make a weekend ascent of Mount Erebus. Careful planning went into the heist and resulted in a successful summiting and the return of the equipment without anyone noticing anything amiss. The perfect crime in the sense that no one ever suspected a crime in progress and no one ever received punishment for the transgression against McMurdo SOPs, but still a crime in the sense they used the MOGAS without permission, and in a project other than the laudable goals that make McMurdo's presence in the far south necessary, i.e. nobly pushing back the boundaries of science for the good of all humanity. Assault Manly men went south. Manly men settled disputes with their fists. Manly men still do, on occasion. Though today this is more likely to result in a termination of contract and banishment from the ice than in previous decades, and a good thing too. I don't have a lot of time for manly men in the anachronistic mould that sees assault as a solution to situations where words are better tools and running away is a last resort. Assault is the refuge of those too stupid to hurt people effectively with words, and seems to be falling into the past as more effective and longer range and longer lasting means to dent a person's sense of self-worth and to influence public perceptions of them continue to flow from the research being conducted into mean-spirited and venomous verbiage presently underway on Twitter. In the 1950s, an Anari expeditioner required sequestration through part of the winter months due to a propensity for the biff, and there's CCTV footage of a South Korean punch-on at King Sejong Station in 2009 kicking around the internets. Manly men, alcohol, annoying habits... Not enough big boy words and biff. Nicholas Johnson also recounted a drunken McMurdoite, Ted the Racist, losing their bonus but still receiving paychecks after pulling a knife on someone. Unable to get him off site, management used money as a means to prevent him going nuttier and killing someone. But given humanity's been dealing with violent fuckwit in a maritime context by, in its most humane iteration, locking them in the laundry brig. Raytheon's response seems a piss-poor solution. Sexual harassment As mentioned in episode 106, many women stationed in Antarctica experience unwanted romantic overtures, which shouldn't come as any great surprise, since women in the home nations represented by those bases experience unwanted romantic overtures too. As with other social and cultural shifts, the national microcosms in Antarctica follow the lead of the home nations. They don't lead. So serious repercussions for sexual harassment only found traction in station management circles in recent years. 
except for a glaring exception, are found referenced in Nick Johnson's book. Johnson's roommate got fired and sent north from McMurdo for hitting on a guy in the bar. The guy complained to HR that this failed romantic gambit constituted sexual harassment, and in spite of an investigation canvassing all others present during the interaction, turning up no evidence of inappropriate behaviour, Nick's roommate, a galley manager of several seasons' experience, got sacked based on a threat of litigation from the alleged victim. It seems that, until recently, sexual harassment was okay so long as it wasn't a guy asking another guy for sex. I wasn't there. I don't know if the advances were egregious or if the accused harasser refused to acknowledge that those advances were unwelcome, but given the number of murders written off in the USA under the gay panic response, I'm leaning toward thinking this was a homophobe doing what homophobes do and taking every opportunity to make life harder than it needs to be for gay people. For those of you who aren't aware, the gay panic defence is available to homophobes in many states within the USA as a rationalisation for violently killing a gay person in which the murderer gets off the murder hook by claiming the gay person made them feel weird. It's fucked up, but it still exists, and I'm confident that if the litigious plaintiff in this instance, and confident the gay panic defence available to them at the time in Colorado, where the USARP are headquartered, or Virginia, where the NSF resides, held on McMurdo ground, the galley manager would have gone north in a body bag, I've yet to read an equivalent account of a woman making a similar complaint and achieving a similar result in that era. Things have changed, though slowly. Traction gained by hashtag MeToo a few years ago saw several women raise historical complaints about sexual harassment in Antarctic programs, and in one instance, this resulted in a late but just outcome. In 2019, Boston University fired geology professor David Marchant for historical incidents of sexual harassment against students and field assistants at remote Antarctic sites. The process took a long time, with appeals taking up two years, and the result required the university president override a board of management recommendation of a three-year suspension without pay. But it happened, and that's important. So many people are willing to write off the past because it's the past, or to brush problems under the carpet because they're problematic, that when someone takes such matters seriously, it seems a really big deal. Perhaps one day it won't seem a big deal. Perhaps we'll reach a point where it's the norm. And then one day maybe it won't, because people will learn that shitty behaviour leads to shitty outcomes from the problematic party, and people will stop being shitty. We're a long way from that, but the journey of a thousand miles starts with a single step, even if it's a small step taken decades late. I suspect this series shed any incel listeners at episode 106, if not earlier, but if there's even one still doing me the gracious favour of listening to my output, flirting isn't illegal. Asking someone for sex isn't illegal. Commenting on someone's appearance isn't illegal. What is illegal is continuing in those veins after someone's declined your advances, shown no interest in continuing in that vein, or asked you to leave them alone. This isn't hard to understand, and I don't believe most of the people saying it is are as dumb as that stance requires of them. If, like me, you're shit at reading and projecting body language, 
use your actual language to ask, flat out, if someone's interested in taking an interaction where you'd like it to go. That takes more courage than most things I've done, but since the payoff, when it paid off, was sex, I learnt to bite the bullet and form the sentences. Anyone who can't say, I would like to have sex with you, hasn't reached a point of maturity that they should be having sex with anyone other than themselves. Anyone who hasn't reached a point they can accept the brush off as exactly that, similarly doesn't have what it takes to approach sex responsibly, and similarly deserves to be left to their own devices. And even then, I'd keep the ones that plug into the mains away from them. Rape and sexual assault. Not many men want to talk about rape because it makes them feel very uncomfortable, and any attempt to characterise it as a crime mostly committed by men will lead to barrages of not all men weeping, and falsified statistics about false rape allegations, and an insistence that women also rape men. It's true that not all men rape, that false allegations of rape are possible, and that women can rape men, but none of that alters that most rapes are committed by men against women, and that most rapes against men are also committed by men, and that the numbers of false allegations of rape, while problematic on their face, aren't large enough to warrant citation as a reason not to take an account of rape seriously. I can cite five instances of sexual assault by men against women in an Antarctic context, none of which were handled well by the management bodies in charge of the Antarctic presence under which those incidents took place. Given the general underreporting of rape and sexual assault in the societies represented by presences in Antarctica, I can only imagine similar or worse ratios of incidents to reports at play in the isolation of the far south. Some people involved cite the problems highlighting on-station rapiness might cause in terms of funding, while others claim silence is the best option because working out how to handle prosecuting a crime at high latitudes is problematic based on jurisdiction issues. Bulks to both schools of thought. If you can't be relied on to take crime seriously, you shouldn't be allowed to play in the high latitude sandpit. It'd be a good rule of thumb, I guess, but no one's consulting my thumb on such matters. Some women will also fire up about any attempt to tell men to be less rapey citing the same three sources of disquiet, making me curious about how they arrived at their inflated statistics about vexatious rape allegations. But the argument plays out the same regardless of the gender of the person positing the straw man gambits, the false dichotomies, or the whole cloth fabrications. Rape is mostly a problem of men having sex with people who don't want to have sex with them. Telling men not to do that is the path forward, starting with the most likely to try and working backwards to education programs for children about bodily autonomy and consent. Hashtag not all men, hashtag not all victims are women, but hashtag 100% of men who rape women, or men, are men, so hashtag don't rape anyone. As with the murder examples given earlier, victims usually know their attacker, and the rapist doesn't have to be a slavering monster to commit rape. All they need to do is have sex with someone who doesn't want to have sex. Once. It's a binary thing. If you've never had non-consensual sex with anyone, you're not a rapist. If you have, you are a rapist. One in six Australian women and one in 25 Australian men will be sexually assaulted at least once after the age of 15, with rates at least twice as high 
for those under the age of 15. 97% of assailants are men, so hashtag don't rape is a very important and poorly understood message, no matter what your gender, history and present levels of barely contained umbrage. Sorry to bang on about this, but no, I'm not actually. A particularly rapey iteration of the Australian Federal Government recently released an extremely expensive and dunderheaded educational video about milkshakes as a metaphor for consent, making matters, if anything, less clear while burning through a bunch of tax dollars. Tax dollars they could have saved by simply linking to the existing video content about tea as a metaphor for consent, produced by the Thames Valley Police in the UK, which is on the money and has been since first released in 2015. I don't know how the government fucked it up. Oh, wait, yes I do. It speaks volumes about how rapey Australia is, as a nation, and why, that our elected representatives managed to fuck up such a simple message. Hashtag not all white male boomer members of federal parliament, but also hashtag not none. I incorporate a musical version of that message at the end of this episode, drawn from the Australian Broadcasting Corporation's the Weekly with Charlie Pickering in 2015, performed by Miranda Tapsell, Geraldine Quinn and Angie Hart. The song, Hey Boy, Hashtag Don't Rape. Before that, New Antarctica for your ears. The Australian masterminds behind The Catering Show, Kate McCartney and Kate McLennan, worked with an ensemble cast of Australian comedians to produce the eight-part audio sitcom Slushy, available free through Audible. Set on an Australian research station and drawing on the experiences of Australian Antarctic Division expeditioners, the series didn't grab me in the first episode, seeming an updated but stodgy continuation of Brass Monkeys, but the second episode reeled me in with a line about the number of ukuleles and knitting circles on station, making the protagonist feel as though she was trapped in Zoe Dachanel's dream journal, and I tore through the rest of the series at pace from that point onward. Historically, Australia hasn't produced many good situation comedies, so this was a pleasant continuation of the high standard the Kates McLennan and McCartney set themselves with The Catering Show, which you should go look up as soon as you have the time and bandwidth if you haven't watched it already. Catering spelt with a K. Another factual Antarctic audio series, produced by the UK Antarctic Heritage Trust, A Voyage to Antarctica, is into its second season and continues knocking my production values and interviewing technique into the weeds. Top-notch science communication and fascinating guests. I should mention here that the Big Dead Place website I felt so excited to see resurrecting in 2018 and cited several times in this episode appears to have fallen off the internet again. Now you know as much about the situation as I do. I'm sorry if I'm late with the news. I was looking for Nick's take on Hammer Time at McMurdo in 1996 when I realised the digital wraith no longer haunted the web address, bigdeadplace.com. Saying g'day this episode to Belinda, who finally got to my place for long-anticipated waffles and waffling. Take care and enjoy your bowel movements without ever openly acknowledging that because And furthermore, I consider that Carthage must be destroyed and that Hadley Mearsham should be avoided.